And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, the game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles' exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Hopefully, you've been enjoying the wrestling over the last couple of days, I would say, with everything going on in the sport of professional wrestling. I'm sure you did. And there was a lot of stuff to kind of take away. And where I was kind of wrapping up my wrestling weekend, it hit me. I have almost 10 pages worth of notes. So trust me, this is going to be a long one. Pack a lunch, pack a dinner, maybe, because we got a lot to talk about. But first things first, we're going to go into Clash at the Castle, then we'll talk about All Out. It was a busy weekend in the world of pro wrestling. We didn't even get to watch a moment of Worlds Collide. Did hear a lot about the Ricochet-Carmelo Hayes match, which we might talk about a little bit more on a future podcast, because I think I've heard enough to where I can say that is a absolute banger and deserves to be watched and observed. Maybe we put on the Boudin rating scale. Now, full disclosure, I didn't watch this show, the bulk of it until later on Saturday. And like this is just more the fact of me being in the States. It was a great time for the people in the UK watching wrestling at like at six, seven o'clock at night versus two, three AM. Like it normally is, but doing that, like, this is the big mistake with all this. It's not as much them doing the show the way they did that they did. It's more the fact that they actually had the show at noon on opening day of college football. Again, that might just be purely my point of view versus anybody else's. But I didn't watch, but maybe the last two matches on the card and watch the rest of it on Sunday. Before all out, because I made sure I was I'm gonna watch this. And I was thoroughly sports entertained. I'll go ahead and say that right out of the gate. Now I'll get to my thoughts on which show was better in a little bit, but I didn't see this show live. Had to watch delayed, but kind of kept myself wary of people's thoughts on the match. I wanted to go in there with a relatively speaking clear mind. I skipped the pre-show, but I did hear a lot of good things about the six-man tag match between Madcap and the Street Profits versus Austin Theory and Alpha Academy. I'm just saying, Street Profits definitely are one of the best tag teams in the WWE right now, and they're getting better. That Doomsday blockbuster to the outside, that spot was absolutely insane. The crowd ate that stuff up for breakfast, lunch, maybe a little tea time as well. First off, the biggest thing that I took away from this was they had an unusual stage design, but it's just more because of how the arena was set up. It's a lot like some baseball stadium stateside where they're all different dimensions and the arenas are just very different compared to where they typically do shows in big old football stadiums or you do them in these typical, I'm not going to say it to be mean, but cookie cutter arenas. That's pretty much what we see. For the most part, they're all similar dimensions to where you can maximize your attendance. But with a lot of the arenas out in the UK, they're designed very differently because they're used a lot more universally for soccer or in the case of the Principal- Principality Stadium. There we go. That was used more along the lines of a rugby stadium, as they mentioned on commentary. So it wasn't like a crazy old school WWE event arena with the Trons and everything, which mind you, that kind of is expected at this point. 
but it still felt a little bit strange. But I also got to say, I was kind of glad not to see the generic like UK look that they have every time they go to London back in the day when you had the London car, the telephone booth, and and that was it. Like that's basically how you differentiated between the were when they were in the US and all this stuff, which was really refreshing to say the least. So we open up with the six woman tag team match between Bailey, Eosky, and Dakota Kai. Now collectively known as Damage Control, which is a really great name, by the way, taking on Bianca Belair, Asuka, and Alexa Bliss. Right out of the gates, Michael Cole is on one. He's talking about all these great legends from the UK, including Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks. No love for Grado. Again, we talked about that a little bit last week. Some of my favorite Brit wrestlers of all time, and also UK wrestlers, period. But it was refreshing to see them get right into the action again. We've talked about it a lot at SummerSlam, but it's still a thing where they're just letting them get into it. instead of airing 10-minute promo packages and we're already 15 minutes past the hour and the wrestling's just now starting. I think they're starting to understand how to do that and how to get people immediately hooked and boom, you don't have to wait 15 minutes. And first off, like, I've been watching WWE for a while, and it's kind of wild to see how much they've changed Alexa Bliss back to the old school version of her with the gear and all that, and also a revamped version of her theme, which is great. Because for a while, it was that weird middle ground between, you know, fiend Alexa Bliss and regular. It was like a weird mishmash, but they started to kind of bring it back to the real or the older version of Alexa Bliss, which I think works. The UK crowd is absolutely on one right out the gate, bringing back the, hey, Bailey, ooh, ah, that stuff. And she is not having any of it. She was great at healing it up to kind of shut those chants down quickly. And eventually, this was chaos right from the word go. All six women get involved. It's a brawl. The referee cannot keep up with all that. They had a really cool spot with a triple suplex from the baby faces. And then Bianca hits a handspring moonsault on all three of the heels for a two count. At one point, this is probably one of the highlights of the night for me personally, was to see Michael Cole bring up Joshi wrestling. Maybe he's a low-key Joshi fan, but it was kind of cool to hear him actually acknowledge wrestling that goes on outside of the WWE because for the most part, there's been some rare instances, namely AJ Styles' debut, Brock Lesnar. They'll mention New Japan, but it's very rare for them to actually acknowledge, hey, these people have done stuff outside of WWE. And this is a prime example with EO and Asuka. They used to be a tag team, or well, actually they were a tag team, but they're also a stable called Triple Tails back in the 2010s. And Triple H is letting him do his thing. And we talked to the SummerSlam review of how much better he's been on commentary because he's just out there having fun and that's how you're going to get people more and more invested in your overall product rather than overproducing or micromanaging to a certain level this was a really good moment with michael cole acknowledging things that have happened in the past with other companies because again it's very rare you hear this kind of stuff from the WWE, AEW does it all the time, but it also helps they have relationships with certain companies, namely New Japan, to where they can outright acknowledge and also use their footage. 
And especially since they own the Ring of Honor tapes, it helps even more, which we'll talk about that more later on. But this is a really solid opener. All three women, all, all six women, excuse me, giving it their all. There was a moment during the match where it further proves why I love Corey Graves and Byron Saxon. The fact that they had this banter all the time, it's top tier. Corey Graves at one point drops a line to Byron Saxon. How come you're 50 and still single? I pop for that. But again, these six women gave their all. EO and Asuka wound up squaring off, and these two went at each other. She was, I mean, Asuka was just going off, playing the hits. Good stuff from her. Belair finally got the hot tag at one point in the match, but I was surprised at how kind of lukewarm and less pronounced that moment was because it felt like that should have been a bigger reaction. I thought they'd react more to it. But again, this UK crowd, as always, they were a little bit more of a smarter crowd. And not saying smart in terms of intelligence level, I'm just saying more smart to the wrestling business. Double superplex by Bailey to Bailey by Asuka and Alexa, which looked amazing. They used Bianca's back to keep them balanced, was a really cool spot. I hadn't seen that before. At one point, Bel Air lands a brutal looking power bomb. But Bailey gets the win. All three members beat her up with a running boot in the corner, rose plant, and a moonsault from EO Sky. And Bailey gets the pin and the win. I'm giving this three and a half links of Boudin. Very good opening tag team match. And the story told with this match and the finish actually was a great idea. It felt like it was the only way they were going to kind of move forward with this, especially with the fact that the other two members of Damage Control didn't win the women's tag team titles. Now it's time to start putting th- more things into motion. And at the end of the day, Bailey is without a doubt the next big bad of the four horsewomen that Bianca Belair's got to go through. She's got to go deal with that for a while. And it's great to see because Bailey absolutely deserves to be in that spot. I think she's going to get the best out of Bianca because there's going to be some genuine heat between these two, and I think the chemistry will be there. I think we hopefully we can get a good, long storyline throughout. And hopefully it's not a hot potato type situation as well, because I think that would hurt it a little bit in my mind. But going back to what I was saying about the Women's Tag Team Championships, I'm still surprised at it, but I think this got them back on the right path. And again, they can win the titles down the road, but I think they're going to wind up having it be maybe Sasha and Naomi do indeed come back in the next let's say two, three weeks to where you have Raquel Gonzalez and Leah lose that match because they're inexperienced as a tag team compared to Sasha and Naomi. And then we get to see Sasha and Naomi versus Io Sky and Dakota Kai and Dakota Kai and Io Sky take the titles. Again, we got a long way to go, but not quite a short time to get there for possibly that storyline to pay off. Next up on the card, Gunther defending the Intercontinental title versus Sheamus. And before the match, they show off and pay homage to the iconic SummerSlam 1992 main event between British Bulldog and Bret Hart, which, for the record, it's a great match. But I think it's kind of overly glorified, and both guys get a lot of credit. And obviously, they do that more because they don't want to bury anybody in particular, especially when they talk about history, because then it kind of sours it. But if you go watch that match, Hart carried the crap out of that match. And it's because Davy Boy was completely blown up two minutes in and apparently was having a little bit too much fun with him. Uh, 
the booger sugar, if you will, at that point. Imperium is back, but with their new names, which was wild to see. With Giovanni Vinci, he's going to be part of the SmackDown roster now, which, again, that's a great way to kind of get the fans into it and be over with one Gunther, which is still dumb. But, that again, that's a different debate. Before the match even starts, the heels and Rich and Ridge and Butch square off with Ludwig and Giovanni. They brawl all around the ring. Sheamus and Guther are standing in there, just staring each other down, not moving a muscle, reminding me of some other matches out in pro wrestling. Noah, and this isn't the first time I'll be bringing that ish up on this podcast because this was a straight up hoss fight. My chest was hurting by the end of the end of this one. It would have fit right at home, especially with all the chop exchanges they were throwing at each other. This would have fit really well alongside Kensuke Sasaki and Kenta Kobashi out in Noah when they were just damn near like murdering themselves with how much their chest was bleeding from the, all the chops. And Seamus, again, it's great to see with Seamus. He continues to look like a million bucks. And more importantly, he was getting chopped like nobody else all throughout that match. I was blown away. Blown away at the visual of Sheamus's chest. And again, the dude's just pale as pale as a piece of paper. But he was getting absolutely chopped to hell. And it reminded me of Daniel Bryan whenever he was in the Royal Rumble, the greatest Royal Rumble in 20, I think it was 2018 in the first Saudi show. His chest was absolutely destroyed. It reminded me so much of that moment in particular. Then we see these two just continue to beat the crap out of each other. Really great moment with Sheamus going for the Celtic cross. Haven't seen that in a long time. Nowhere near enough. They're just trying everything. And to a certain extent, it felt like a Kings Road type match. And Gunther wound up winning with a after a powerbomb, landed a massive lariat for the win. And maybe it's just me, but this is a five links of Boudin type of match. Haas fight personified. After the match, Sheamus received a standing ovation for his efforts. Well-deserved. And I'm starting to kind of put Sheamus, not in the greatest of all time, but I think he deserves to be considered one of the best in the business not just because of the longevity he's had in his career, but I think more importantly, he's been a very solid hand and has always been one of those just guys that can carry you to a good to a damn good match. It's great to see that moment with Sheamus and Gunther just beating the crap out of each other for about 15, 20 minutes. And sometimes, we've I've talked about it before, but with wrestling... I need more variety. I can't just have, you know, the same old, you know, good match, good match, good match, but there's nothing more to it. There's no storytelling. There's no certain angles being emphasized. Like what you're going to talk about the Liv Morgan SmackDown Women's Championship match. If it was just regular old Liv Morgan wrestling, Shayna Baszler would have outclassed her in kayfabe. But this wound up being a very entertaining match because Liv Morgan she elevated her game to be against somebody like Shayna because she wasn't prepared to face off against anybody of that level before. 
she's wrestled Ronda Rousey, but at the same time, she's wrestling with a bad arm. That was something else that played into the angle. And I was pretty surprised to see Leon Edwards. They showed him in the crowd before the match. They acknowledged him, which was kind of strange, but I liked it. Hopefully they do more of that sometimes when you have a notable name, be it from the world of the UFC or anywhere else, really, outside of AEW or Impact. But if you've got a name there, go ahead and acknowledge it. That was a nice touch that I liked. And Liv Morgan wanted to ping homage to Sensational Sherry while Baszler wound up rocking a Warhammer 40K tribute shirt with her attire. And I thought it was anime at first. It took me like a good five, ten minutes to realize what it was because it reminded me a lot of, you know, One Piece. Or I don't know why, but it just did. Never played Warhammer 40K. I'm not part of the PC Master Race, so I didn't even know what that was a reference to until I did some research. And I talked about it earlier. And this is also another thing where Michael Cole did a great job of explaining things that maybe people didn't know. That during the run-up to the show, Riddle was training with Liv Morgan so she could understand how to handle wrestling somebody who is so well-versed in submissions and, and the ground game. And being able to get out of the Kirafuda clutch at any single time. And these two worked. Baszler was absolutely in control for about 75% of this match. It wasn't until the final moments where Morgan really started to come alive after she got out of the Kirafuda clutch, hit the jersey codebreaker, and then landed with Oblivion for the win. And again, really is showing how Liv Morgan isn't just a one-trick pony. You're seeing her elevate her game just a little bit more. It's a great step in the right direction for that women's division. I'm giving this three links of boot in. Now we get to what I think was probably going to be one of the more entertaining matches of the night until Sheamus and Gunther tore the bleeping house down. Was Edge and Rey Mysterio versus the Judgment Day. Edge comes out. It is an all-timer entrance. He's got a mask on for some reason. Takes off not long after. The fans are singing Alter Bridge in 2022. Outstanding. And again, it further proves why we need to see this and a lot less of the Saudi shows. These UK shows absolutely kick so much ass. Now that COVID's less of an issue, I don't see why they don't try and do one at least once a year going forward. Because that energy is unmatched, especially because of the fact they haven't had one in what feels like it's been 30 years, but I feel like it's been even longer since they've had a show that people were that interested in across the pond. Because usually when they do, when they did like the was it super showdown in Australia, it felt like a house show. Beast from the East pretty much was a house show. Now these are feeling like legitimate events and are, more importantly, canon. Really good opening sequence with Mysterio and Balor. The big men get into the match. Priest took over, throwing bombs from the outset against Edge. They had a really great spot at one point where Mysterio dropped Edge, or stopped Edge, excuse me, from just destroying himself in the corner. That was a cool spot. I've never really seen that before. Finn tried duplicating it, but... Edge essentially stopped that and kicked him right in the gut, which was a cool spot. 
Balor drawing heel heat by teasing the three amigos doesn't get all three. One point, Priest gets crotched on the barricade after teasing hitting one on the barricade on Edge, a powerbomb, which if that hit, that would have been a really cool spot and probably the end of Edge's career as well, but that's a different conversation. The hot tag for Edge was outstanding, played the hits with the old Edge execution, even hit a 619, more like a 519 according to Graves, which was a great shout out to Southwest Ontario. Not Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which the area code is 416. That's why Drake calls it the 6. Right there for you. If you don't know, now you know. So Edge hit a spear to the outside to save Ray Mysterio. One point, Balor goes to the coup de grace, but Dominic distracts the ref. And Mysterio lays out Balor. Ripley absolutely gloms Dominic Mysterio, and then Ray saves his son. And then Dominic returns the favor at the end of the match, tripping up Finn. And that sets up a 619 into the spear for a win, which looked damn near seamless. Like right after he made the turn, Edge is right there to spear him out of his boots. Really solid grudge match. Three and a half links of boot amp, played a ton of hits. Fans were into it. Now, here's where things kind of went a little sideways, at least for me. And that was the fact you had. Dominic turn on Edge and Rey Mysterio after the match by punting Edge basically right in the family jewels and then his shoe fell off. That's how hard he hit him. And then he lariat Mysterio's head right off. And it was amazing because there was a clip somebody showed and it was basically side by side or not quite side by side. It was it was top bottom of Edge of Eddie's clothesline on Rey Mysterio as they started their feud in 05. But that one, and I'll tell you what, he laid into him with that. Very cool. Now we get to another grudge match. Seth Rollins versus Matt Riddle. First off, Rollins looked like he had just came out of a Elton John music video with the devil gear and also kind of looking like Curry Man as well. But holy hell, this was good. An immediate hockey fight as the bell rang. And this is exactly how a grudge match should be starting. I cannot stand when I see a collar and elbow tie-up start off a match where these two absolutely hate each other. It makes no damn sense. And they, I mean, Riddle's heated. He's working himself to a shoot, argues with the ref. And that gives Rollins a chance to recover from the early attack, take control. Barricade bomb, which did look at nearly as brutal as the one he had on Finn back in 2016. But it still sucks to take that bump, bottom line. Tons of high kicks from Rollins and Riddle. Rollins went for the reverse superplex, but kind of slipped up and lost control. That led to an improv, improvised spot, at least it felt like to me, was a double stomp while, while Riddle was in the tree of woe. Only for two. Loki continues to be in shambles because Seth Rollins steals all of his finishers. Riddle counters with the Falcon Arrow after the superplex with a Fishman Buster, but cannot capitalize on that. Floating bro to the outside on the second rope. At one point, Rollins hits his steel finisher and lands the bro Derek for 2.9. Teases the Phoenix Splash, but as always, he misses it. 
hidden blade, sets up the stomp for Rollins, but Riddle hits a massive knee to counter. Rollins hits the pedigree, only good for two. Rollins trash talks Riddle, and like Matt Riddle is going into that that deep and dark place, and he's want to beat the tar out of him. Rollins winds up stealing another move from Randy Orton, this time the second rope DDT. Riddle's rage gets the best of him. He is trying to hit Rollins with a chair, but Seth is well aware. And once Matt gets back in the ring, stomp and then Brett's rope stomp for the win. Four and a half links of Buddha, instant classic if there ever was one. The atmosphere was unmatched. And I was blown away at the fact you have the clear heel actually get booed versus the face. Like the whole time, it pretty much is going to be one man who is the heel and one man is the baby face. And it was clear from the minute this got announced. But again, UK fans are a little bit smarter. Last match of the night, Universal Championship, the undisputed, I should say, Universal Championship. Roman Reigns defending against Drew McIntyre. First off, love the build-up to this. The pre-match video for Broken Dreams was great. But damn it, I wanted to hear the whole song as Drew's walking his way to the ring. But still, great moment. Pre-match stare down was amazing. Reigns was shook right from the jump because this was a very pro McIntyre crowd. And I I watched it live, didn't have the notes ready because again, college football and that was complete madness around this time because that was whenever you had App State and UNC just try and see who gets to 100 first which they didn't, which was the most disappointing part of that. But the final five minutes of that match felt like attitude error on steroids. Tons of outside crap going on. Ref bump off the Claymore. That leads to Austin Theory trying to cash in, but Fury stops him and just absolutely annihilates his ass with a big old punch. These two are still fighting. Drew sets up for one more Claymore, but Solo Sokoa makes his main roster debut and helps Reigns retain the championship. This was a fun-ass main event. Not technically sound, but four links of Budan. Match of the night honors will go to Gunther versus Sheamus. A lot of you absolutely went that way, and I wholeheartedly agree with a lot of the opinions coming out of Clash at the Castle. The poll was, was surprising, to say the least, just to see how people were leaning towards a vote on this overwhelming Everybody loved this show. 72% of you voted landing on that. Reigns McIntyre. By the way, you can vote when we put up a poll question on our Cajun Strong Style Podcast Twitter page at Cajun Strong Pod. Go ahead and give us a follow. That way you can get all the podcasts. If you miss it in your subscription box, guess what? This is the way you can find the link for it. Everybody wanted going more Reigns McIntyre, a lot more than I thought. But Seamus Gunther was the match of the night by far. King's Road as all get out. That's the kind of stuff I love. And overall, I agree with the fans. Very, 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 very good show all the way around. Absolutely loving it. All right, it's time to get into AEW All Out 2022. And my God, there was a lot to get to. Mind you, it's just the fact that you have a show that literally went on Forever. Show started at, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, like at 6 o'clock was zero hour. 
and didn't end till damn near like 11, 11.30. And then he had the press conference, which probably kept me up till about 2 a.m. Thank you very much. So we're going to go through the zero hour kind of quickly because there wasn't too much to take away from it yet. Uh, Ty Mello and Sammy Guevara defend the AAA Mixed Tag Team Championships against Ortiz and Ruby Zoho. I like how they set this up where you had RJ City interview the champs, but then Ortiz and Ruby interrupt and run over Sammy with a cart. It just feels like that is becoming an ongoing meme. And mind you, it's been going on for years. Sammy was busted open before the fight even really began. Love the fact you had the war paint with Ortiz and Ruby paying homage to the Japanese legends like Bull Nakano and Aja Kong. Ty landed a massive looking Canadian destroyer thanks to Sammy launching her into the air. And a JAS runs interference, but Ruby isolates her, at least for the moment. There was a spot where, my God, I, I didn't even realize until I wound up seeing a clip of it later on that night. Was basically, it was almost like a reverse Alabama slam, like we see Drew McIntyre do all the time. And essentially, Ruby Soho basically got kicked in the head. And when she landed, it looked like she landed on her damn neck. It was a Bad look all the way around. Ty and Ruby fight to the top. Massive superplex to the outside. Another rough landing for Soho. Ty KO gets the win. And my God, I, Ruby Soho just got beat to hell in this one. Two and a half links of Boone. Fine match. Really was short. Not enough really to kind of put it any higher in my personal rankings. Ruby Soho looked like she busted her nose in that finish as well, which was not a great look. Now we get to the FTW Championship. Hook versus Cool Hand Angelo Parker. Action Bronson is at ringside. He'll play a role later on. Hook absolutely manhandled Ange in the opening moments. A big punch from Angelo Parker right into the eye. Absolutely turned it around. Credit to Matt Menard basically kind of distracting the ref. Again, Matt Menard is such a crazy asshole. It works. And it's just absolutely all Matt Menard for a good while. It was great to see for a change. You have Matt Menard, excuse me, not Matt Menard, Angela Parker take control and hooks fighting from underneath. And he did a great job. Starts landing some of his judo style offense. Attempted brain buster. He gets out of it. Locks him into a red rum. Hook retains. Again, two links of Boudin. Typical pre-show fair. And the biggest challenge to date, but that's not really saying much. It's a lot like what we see with Jade Cargill, who we'll talk about later. She has these short matches to protect her and kind of keep some of the shine on her on the positives rather than focus on the negatives. Then we get to the AEW All-Atlantic Championship, Pack versus Kip Sabian. Wasn't necessarily all that pumped about this, but it was still a pretty damn good match. The fact they actually explained a lot and the go-home show made me think, hey, there is actually some long-term storytelling in this rather than just throwing these two guys together because they're both from across the pond. Kip looked great for his first match in almost two years after getting injured by Miro back in 2021. There was a good feeling out process early on, and they were off to the races. Absolutely some great stuff here. At one point, you start to realize what this gimmick is and you're like, yeah, Kip is a hundred percent going to be a jobber to the stars unless they get this thing over like Rover. It's going to take a lot to do though. And that is the box that he's been wearing on his head for the better part of two years. It's now playing the role of Al Snow's head, like back in ECW and WWE. 
And that's when a new pack would retain, and he did with a black arrow. Again, three links to boot and match really started to pick up the pace of the show, and it was a great moment. Pack is interviewed by Tony Schiavone after the match and is interrupted by Orange Cassie. And Pack basically buries him and calls him a joke. He doesn't want to deal with him anymore because obviously they had their match back at Revolution 2020. That was a really good match, by the way. It was the first time we ever got to see Orange Cassie actually wrestle a good, like a good ass match. Then we get to the main event of Zero Hour. Tomohiro Ishii versus Eddie Kingston. This was Haas Fight City. A lot like what we said with Gunther Sheamus, that this was pretty much 90% of the match was chops, and these two were just chopping the shit out of each other for about 70% of this match. After all this, my chest is hurting seeing this. Kings Road style match. You wind up having Kingston nearly win with a spinning back fist. Ishii kicks out. You had Kingston win with a Northern Lights bomb after another spinning back fist gets the win. Three and a half links of Bune. I love this kind of stuff. It's just two guys absolutely assaulting each other. Not about tactical wrestling. But again, I have to say, it's mind-blowing to me with the fact that they have this on the pre-show. And this was considered quote-unquote punishment for Eddie Kingston in his part in the Sammy Guevara brawl. BS. That was 100% like Eddie Kingston's getting a good-ass match. He's having himself a ball. Yeah, he's probably going to be hurt to hell for a while. But give me this match again. Run this son of a bitch back. Then we get to the casino ladder match. Wheeler Yuta versus Pinta versus Andrade Alidolo versus Ray Phoenix versus Dante Martin versus Roosh versus Claudio Castagnoli. And then there's the Joker. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Opening with a multi-man ladder match is how I would book a pay-per-view. Because it's high energy, frenetic, and you're going to get a ton of holy shit spots into where this crowd is going to get into it. And that's exactly what we got here. You have Phoenix and Yuta start the match off. These two were absolutely just going off right from the jump. Phoenix damn near hits a superplex off the top of the ladder, but Yuta avoids disaster, isolating Phoenix in the process. Then you get to see... You know, Rouge enters next, and he basically wasted all this time as Yuta's climbing the ladder, which made no sense. But Rouge, once he got in, he obliterated him. Damn near crumpled him up with a big-ass forearm, which looked great. Turned his focus over to Ray Phoenix and grabbed some camera cable and started kind of beating him with. I guess he was choking him because my stream kind of crapped out at this point, so things came back. And essentially, Andrade Elidolo came out next, and the two faction members start taking over. Crazy sunset flip powerbomb on the ladder on by, by Andrade onto Yuta. Essentially looked a little bit safer than what we saw at Money in the Bank 2019 with Finn, where he basically bounced off of that thing like he was a bouncy ball. Then we get to see Claudio come out. The, he's ball of fire. He's also a little bit concerned about Yuta. Powers Andrade off the ladder, which had a second ladder wedged in it. The thing was like basically jammed in there. I don't know how they managed to pull that off. Dante Martin comes out. We get the flippy stuff. I'm all the way here for it. And he kept just doing these springboard spots to where he was able to get right on the freaking ladder almost immediately. There were some really cool moments with that. 
including Martin getting thrown up in the air by Claudio, but he landed on the ladder. Dude just is a real-life Spider-Man. You have Penta come out. He immediately destroyed Martin with a destroyer on the apron, then hits a destroyer on the ladder on Andrade, which looked brutal as all get out. Phoenix is the frog splash through the table on Roosh. Now it's Dante Martin, Claudio, Wheeler, Yuta. They're all brawling on the one ladder that's in the ring. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of masked men run in, and one of them climbs the ladder, steals the poker chip, and the Joker is the winner. But we don't know who it is, and the man in the mask was Stokely Hathaway. Now, again, I would hope when you're listening to this podcast, you've watched all out. So you know what happens at the end result. And at first, you're like, well, what the fuck was that? Like, immediately, that's what I thought. It was just like, what was going on here? The match itself was three and a half links to Boone. It could have been four. But it was a head scratcher. And it felt like it was MGF. But you have a moment where, you know, Stokely Hathaway comes out with all his crew. And when you know what the end result is of the show, with MJF being the guy, it makes perfect sense. Stokely Hathaway managed him in the Indies early on with as part of the Dream Team. W. Morrissey was a hired hitman during the Wardlow feud. Great call back there. And the other guys, more so Ethan Page, he's just a frustrated guy. He was one of those outspoken guys not long after the whole MGF thing. And that's how we've gotten to Stokely Hathaway essentially running this stable of guys who are one disgruntled and two are more or less frustrated about their spot on the card. Now, how it adds up, that's any guess at all. I was very confused by all of it at first, but then you start to realize how cool that was. The fact you had sympathy for the devil playing on an AEW pay-per-view, that was cool in and of itself. The fact they licensed that, that probably cost them a pretty penny, mind you. Probably less of a penny than reportedly the money to get Van Halen music or something like that, according to Chris Jericho in the post-media scrum, which we'll talk about later. But a really fun match just was a at the time very freaking weird. Thankfully, they did pay it off at the end of the show. AEW World Trios Championship match: John Silver, Alex Reynolds, and Adam Page versus the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega. Good early start to the contest, and it was also really cool seeing throughout the match, especially early on, whenever you had John Silver and Alex Reynolds target, you know, Matt Jackson's back, which has been really well documented. Just another step in like basically. He's friends with his guys, but at the same time, he respects the Young Bucks. If it was Kenny, he'd be like, no, I don't give a shit. Just do what you want with him. Page gets tags in, and we get to see Page and Omega square off for the first time since Full Gear 2021. These two picked up right where they left off. Great to see. Nick Jackson landed a great-looking super kick on Page, turned the momentum around. Page got isolated for a few minutes. But he was able to get the hot tag in on Silver, and he was a ball of fire. Landed a great-looking spin doctor, but Kenny broke up the pin at the last second. Double suplex countered into a double Northern Lights by, by Madigan that back affected him after that spot. Omega gets in and starts taking Dark Order to Snapdragon Suplex City. Vintage Beaver Boys double team. Kenny kicks out at the last possible second. Omega hits a massive dive to the outside, eliminates the opposition. Reynolds all alone against the Elite. He has a spot where he's just going to get destroyed. 
but it winds up backfiring with Matt getting rocked by Omega and Nick with their pair of kicks. Pendulum bomb, but Nick Jackson breaks up with a swanton. Super kick war between the Beaver Boys and the Bucks. This match is starting to pick up in like fifth gear at this point. Omega and Paige want to fight again, but Knox tells them they have to tag in. And they drag the legal men into their corner and are now the legal men. That moment popped me hard. Swear to God, that was hysterical to me. Hard-hitting battle between these two. Omega nearly wins with a Tiger Driver. Moonsault and battery for two and a half. Nick Jackson winds up hitting the buckshot lariat, followed by a BTE trigger, but Reynolds saves the day at the last second. Now we get to the finish. Silver pays homage to Mr. Brody, trying to go for the discus lariat, but Omega ducks, sets up the one-winged angel, but Silver rolls him up, and I swear to God, I think everybody bit on that so hard to have that moment where... The Dark Order wins this. But nope, the Elite win after Hangman accidentally hits the Buckshot Lariat on Silver. Which, great piece of storytelling. Emotional roller coaster and without a doubt, my match of the night. Four and a half links to Budan, by far my favorite match of the night. Now we get to the come down part with the AEW TBS Championship. With Jade Cargill taking on Athena. First off, Athena's brand new wings are really cool. And also, something I just never really thought about till I watched this show. Was the fact that you have, you know, and like it's almost an Overwatch-type intro voice for Athena's thing, which is really cool. I'm not going to lie. I absolutely love that. Overall, just an amazing performance from start to finish with the entrances. Cargill having a She-Hulk look. No twerking with Megan the Stallion, so I think it's better than what Disney Plus has put out. Again, this is just solely my opinion. Athena nearly gets the win with the Eclipse right out the gate, but Kiera Hogan and Gray break it up in the pin attempt. Code Red attempt, but Jade gets out of it. Cargill lands a great-looking pop-up, a one drop. Athena pretty much no-sold that. Really good war between these two. All of a sudden, ended out of nowhere after a wicked pump kick from like midair, basically, because Jade caught her after a springboard flying nothing, hits the Jaded for the win. Not much really to it, but still a very, very fun match. Two and a half links of Budan for me. Now we get to the six-man tag with FTR and Wardlow versus Jay Lethal and the Motor City Machine Guns. Honestly, I would have just much rather seen FTR and the Motor City Machine Guns, Jade Lethal and Wardlow were kind of the tertiary part of this. But Wardlow and Lethal start off the match, and he's absolutely having himself some fun. Now we get to see the dream match, kind of sort of with FTR and Motor City Machine Guns. These two went at a great back-and-forth sequence with Saban and Dax. Shelly and Saban isolate Dax for a while, but he turns the fight around. And it falls short of what we saw earlier with the trios match, but that was obvious. It was still so much fun to see these two tag teams, FTR and Motor City Machine Guns, two in my mind of the best tag teams in the last 15 years or so. Again, personal reasons, because I absolutely loved watching the Motor City Machine Guns in the late 2000s, early 2010s, especially like during that peak run in 2010 when they were the tag champs, that series with Beer Money. Go back and watch that, that I think it was the seventh match in that series, that is how you end off a best of seven. That was so damn cool. 
one point, Lethal and the Guns focus on Cash's knee after a drop kick by Shelly kind of aggravated that. Wardlow gets a hot tag and it's just a house of fire clobbering everyone. He gets the win after the Powerbomb Symphony gets the win. One point, Satnam Singh missed his cue, which was hilarious. And that's not the only time there's been like a missed cue or at least a clear one of a missed cue. Now, this was a really fun match. I just want to see FTR Motor City Machine Guns run this back as a straight-up 2v2. Give it to me all day. Three links to boot and a tight match. Lethal and crew try to get the jump on FTR and Warlow, but Samoa Joe comes out and cleans house. And that leads to Sanjay Dutt getting his ass kicked. And then Dax's daughter gets a pin on Dutt, who is wearing a fight-like-an-eight-year-old brat t-shirt. Just tremendous stuff from everybody in that moment just a fun little post-match segment nothing really more to it ricky starks versus powerhouse hobbs hobbs's entrance made him look like an absolute star like i swear this was a guy this is a match i was looking forward to sadly though it only lasts about five minutes and hobbs won with a spine buster and i think this is one of the biggest issues with AEW and how they do pay-per-views not every, and again, I get it. You've got quarterly pay-per-views. You only got four a year. You want to get everybody on the card because again, it's going to help with paydays. But I think there's a better way of doing this. And I think it's time to start considering booking less matches on a pay-per-view card if you're AEW because it feels like there are matches on the card that are slotted pretty much to be wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, about five, 10 minutes. That's it. And it hurts. It hurts the overall state of the company, if in my mind. Because this was one of the more intriguing matches outside of, obviously, the main event and Christian Cage Jungle Boy, just in terms of the story being told. Now we get to the AEW Tag Team Championship match, Swerve and Our Glory versus The Acclaimed. JR with the line of the night, I bought three Scissor Me Daddy Ass t-shirts, which... I was like, okay, interesting. The fans are solely, I mean solely, into the acclaimed. Everyone was saying how, like, yeah, they should have done something like this. To be honest, I think they did the right thing, especially when you see how badly it looked like, you know, Anthony Bowen's knee was legit hurt. He was fighting through it, but damn, it looked like it was... Legit, his knee was completely wrecked towards the end of the match. Just so many cool spots here. Keith Lee showcasing his athleticism. The fact the dude was absolutely doing like three-quarter rolls and leapfrogs, it amazes me, and I've seen it a billion times. And I've seen him do the top rope like flip, and that's amazing. Some of this stuff was just crazy from the word go. So many last-second false finishes. Bowens wound up hitting the arrival and then Castro hits the mic drop, but Lee breaks up the pin on, on that was on Swerve at the last second. There was a couple of moments of communication breakdown where Swerve was hit by Lee. Lee got hit by Swerve. And damn near led to a win multiple times, but really cool. Massive Swerve in our glory finish, and Lee and Strickland retained the titles. Four and a half links of Budin. This was an amazing match and second best match of the night by far. Afterwards, Keith Lee 
show respect by scissoring Billy Gunn. That's a phrase in 2022 I never thought I'd say. Mind you, I never thought I'd say that in my life. Now we get to the AEW Interim World Women's Championship. AEW Interim Women's World Championship. There we go. I was going to get it eventually. And it's Tony Storm, Britt Baker, Jamie Hayter, and Hikaru Shida all squaring off. And this was a pro Jamie Hayter crowd, and I agree. Really fun four-way that at least for probably about 50% of the match felt didn't feel like a typical four-way where we start off with all four of them going at it. It was more or less two women in the ring at a time. Things didn't feel like a, a complete mess. You were able to focus more on what was going on in the ring. Really good spot with Tony and Sheeta hitting a double headbutt on Rebel. She sold that thing like death. She's an S-tier seller in my mind. Britt hits the stop on Sheeta on the ramp, and they kind of send her to the back. Hater starts choking Storm with a rope while the ref is preoccupied. Storm fights back and hits a crossbody on Hater for two. Sheeta comes back and starts swinging the kendo sticks for the fences. She goes for 10 punches on both Hater and Baker, then a deadlift superplex on Jamie, and then two try to go for the katana counter into a big chop. Now we get the big four-way chaos we were expecting, almost at a double-pin finish, and Hater was selling her elbow. Now here's the moment where I wish this would have been the end game. And eventually, Hater pins Britt Baker. Because you have Storm throw out Britt Baker. Jamie Hater takes advantage, hits a ripcord lariat. That should be the finish. Britt pulls the rep out of the ring. Storm zero, but Britt tries to backdoor her way to a title. She, But you have Hater kick out. Storm hits a pair of DDTs and pins Jamie Hater to become the new interim women's champion. Three and a half links of Boudin. I was surprised they have Hater take the pin, but again, somebody's got to do it, and it wasn't going to be the baby face, and it probably wasn't going to be Britt because she would be like, it doesn't work for me, brother. that Or sister, I don't know how she would say it. But that's kind of how that went down. Now we get to the match that had a lot of intrigue just in terms of the story being told was Jungle Boy versus Christian Cage. And my God, during the entrance, Christian got slapped like... By Jungle Boy's mom, she slapped the shit out of him. It was amazing. And they're calling him Jungle Boy Jack Perry now. They're finally doing it. After JR just for a billion times kept calling him Jungle Boy Jack. Now it's Jungle Boy Jack Perry calling him by his full name. And now he loses his best friend Luchasaurus who turned on Jungle Boy and chokeslammed him on the steel where near where the pyro is. Luchasaurus continues to murder Jungle Boy. So I guess this match isn't happening. Well, it did and didn't match did indeed start, but cage hits a spear and a kill switch to win the match. I'm not giving that a rating. It was so damn short. It doesn't deserve one. At least in my heart of hearts. Now we get to the co-main event of the evening. Brian Danielson versus Chris Jericho. My God, this was a technical masterpiece of a match. It sucked Brian lost this match, but again, it kind of further pushes the angle of, you know, the inner inner circle or JAS. I keep thinking it's the inner circle. 
but it's the Jericho Appreciation Society, Daniel Garcia's confliction, because he said he wanted to see Jericho win clean as a whistle. He didn't. He had a low blow into a Judas effect. But again, this was a really fun match and further proves why Jericho is probably one of the best in the game of all time because he's been able to reinvent himself and also have some great matches no matter what kind of style you have, be it sports entertainment or like this actual honest-to-God wrestling. We get a six-man tag as the second-to-last match on the card, House of Black versus Darby Allin, Sting, and Miro. This was a really fun match. Just six-man chaos. Sting got a crap ton of offense in. In fact, he was the one who helped lead to the finish. Malachi Black is about to just destroy Sting with Black Mass. But when Malachi turns around, Sting hits him with, I guess, the miss. And it's almost like he's spitting his face. And Darby gets the win with the Last Supper. At one point, they show Malachi Black while he's in the Scorpion Deathlock. His freaking eye was bleeding. That was kind of brutal looking, especially with the face paint. Added just so much to it. Three and a half links of Boudin type match. Great to see the faces beat the House of Black. But according to live reports, it looks like this is the beginning of the end of Malachi Black's run in AEW. Again, this if, this is if the reports are true. And apparently at the show itself, he actually wound up blowing a kiss to the crowd. So I'm just going to assume it'll be a while before we see Malachi come back. I know he's been dealing with the back injury and stuff, but I'm sure this could be the last time we ever see him which would suck because Malachi had so much damn potential to be the next Undertaker, both in WWE and AEW. It's just right, wrong place, right time type stuff with him. Now we get to the main event, AEW World Championship. Haven't gotten the final results from the DraftKings Sportsbook. Pick them, but I think I got this all right. They Mind you, I'm like, just pay me my money, bro, because that's all I need. Because that's how I roll. And it was like literally this afternoon I pulled it up and I still don't have the money in the account. Now, again, I'm sure I'm not the only one who got this right. It's never always just one person. But I would sure hope so. $1,000 would go a long way (laughs) towards helping, I wouldn't say an addiction, but just a hobby of mine. And that is sports betting also, maybe some other things as well. I mean, $1,000 is $1,000, brother. We're we're always going to take it. We don't care. We don't care. Hell, I mean, even if it was me and like three other people, it's still a pretty good payday, to say the least, just off of the pools. And for what it's worth, I'm going to go ahead and run through that with y'all. He is, again, this is, still hasn't gotten scored yet. Makes you wonder what's taking so long. So, John Moxley made his entrance with one or two championship belts, Then whoever makes the first pinfall attempt will also go on to win the match. That happened. You had over under 14 and a half minutes. That went 20 minutes. Pinfall was how the match ended. Over under paradigm shifts one and a half, even though technically you only had one death rider, which is the paradigm shift, but they call it slightly differently because it's elevated, I guess. Over under the amount of go to sleeps that were performed over one and a half. That was a a hammer down type thing. No one physically interfered in the match. CM Punk bled, so will another participant bleed? That was yes. Well, who will perform the first submission hold? That was John Moxley. Will the referee be knocked out at any point during the match? He was not. So bada bing, bada boom. Your boy should be making some do-re-mi once this thing does indeed come out. 
probably more than I did during opening weekend of college football, but that's a different conversation. But this was a damn good match. Punk luckily is about to win three minutes in after a GTS right out the gate, which looked fantastic. Fight spills to the outside as a walk and brawl. CM Punk gets busted open like right above his eye, which looked gruesome. And Mox continued to target that laceration. Was even biting him. Just wild as all get out. Figure four leg lock with a kind of focus on the foot. Just, just damn good kind of fight there. All the way just nuts. In fact, whenever the finish, I have never seen anything like that before. And that was entertaining as hell. You had Punk hit the GTS and Punk kind of crumples instead of just waiting for for Mox to go down. Mox is just on top of Punk. CM Punk picks him up, hits one more GTS, wins the match, and is your new champion. Four links to Budan, and more importantly, Punk is the new AEW champion once again, as it should be and as it always probably was going to be. And then we get to the end of the show. My God, this was my jam. Lights go out. And a phone call comes on. And it's Tony Khan from a voicemail. Talking about his prolonged absence has hurt the has hurt the company. So he's going to swallow his pride and pay him a certain amount of money that was redacted. And he's going to be in the casino ladder match at all out. And then they show CM Punk's promo from the summer of Punk in ROH back in 2005. And then MGF says he's the devil himself. And he's revealed as the man who was wearing the mask as the Joker. And he's back in AEW and is looking for a title shot. This was freaking awesome. I absolutely loved it. Absolutely phenomenal finish to the show. And again, All Out last year was probably one of the best endings to a wrestling show of all time. Because you had Adam Cole and Daniel Bryan, now Bryan Danielson, show up. You got to see MGF come back, and they did it in such a way. And again, you didn't hear from MGF ever since the infamous pipe bomb promo where he wanted to be fired. And they were able to tell a story in a certain way to where it worked. I swear to God, everything about that was perfect. Then we got to talk about what happened next. We got to get to what happened in the post media scrum because that's what everybody and their mama's talking about. And there's so many reports. I'm not going to get into it. But essentially, you had CM Punk essentially shit on everybody that was at the in the front office essentially it was and it all started basically because he was asked about Cole Cabana and went off basically said he didn't have anything to do with Scott Colton Cole Cabana's real name for about a decade probably wanted nothing to do with him for even longer than that it's unfortunate that they have come up here to speak on this when he's on his time and this is a business and basically, he just starts destroying the Young Bucks, saying they couldn't manage a fucking target, which was, wow. That was wild in and of itself. Top of the EVP just burying them. 
Barry's hangman on a page calling him, quote, an empty headed fucking dumb fuck. He was absolutely just not having it at all. And he was just popping off on everybody that's at the head of AEW, except for Tony Khan, obviously. He was right there. You're not going to do that. And that led to a reported fight between CM Punk, the elite, and even a steel got involved reportedly biting Kenny Omega. Just what the freaking hell is going on? Like you have a melee right after that. And there were reports from Fightful saying that some of them wanted to walk out. Now, I saw somebody bring this up late last night, and it still boggles me that somebody legitimately believes this. I'm going to go ahead and say it right now, and people can take this however they want. I don't give a crap. I don't give a damn. This is my podcast. I'm sure five people listen to this thing. But if anyone thinks that the Bucks and Kenny could make a new promotion lickety split that has the same amount of impact that AEW does, they are fucking mistaken. They are fucking idiots. There's no way anybody can do what they've done with AEW. Because here's the thing. They did it because of Tony Khan. Not because, oh, hey, it's Kenny and the Bucks. It's their new promotion. They're so cool. Here's the thing, geniuses. You got there because you have a billionaire providing you the money. Guarantee you, you ain't going to make money the way y'all would run a promotion. As EVPs, I'd probably agree with that statement. The fact you've had Tony Khan kind of hold the book, whenever y'all could have just taken control and booked the fucking show, if y'all are such geniuses, that's kind of where I'm at on this. Like, why are we thinking that AEW is this great thing and it can be duplicated over and over and over and over again. That's not what this is. Y'all don't realize how stupid that sounds. That the Bucks and Kenny, Hangman Adam Page, they would all just walk off right now, today. I cannot believe that people legitimately think that that would happen. You're never going to make a dime the way they have booked the show. And also the fact they wouldn't have, they would not have a TV deal. That is what makes AEW profitable and more importantly, relevant. I don't think just the Bucks and Kenny Omega and Hangman Adam Page could get a TV deal lickety split because the industry of television has changed so much. Yes, there's a lot of things. We're seeing a lot of successful promotions, but they're only successful so far. Like GCW. GCW's got its own fan base. But they're never going to be at the top. They're always going to be middle of the road. They're going to be just enough to maybe run another show next year. So for those who want to think that the Bucks and Kenny and Hangman can go walk off and do their own thing and it would be successful, 
I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona I want to sell you. They won't replicate the success they have in AEW. They're going to just go back to Reseda, go work for PWG, maybe buy that out with the money they're getting from a potential buyout of their contracts as EVPs, and then go retire and move on. Just the idea of that is stupid to me. Now, yes, CM Punk is completely out of line with some of the stuff he was saying. Like, all that. Didn't need to be said in a public forum. It all started because, obviously, Hangman Adam Page supposedly went into business for himself back in May. But at the same time, like, this could have been taken care of just by a conversation. And again, I think everybody's wrong. Everybody's in the wrong for this. But people, I think, are also not realizing there's never been I can't think of a single company in wrestling. I'm sure people could probably throw names out there, but a wrestling company that has had a locker room that is always harmonious and everybody's singing Kumbaya. That's never the case. It was fun for a little bit, but again, it was because it was wait for it. It wasn't AEW. It was all friends wrestling. It was all, it's all the besties. But what happened? The pandemic happened. A lot of contracts got freed up, and it was a lot of guys you wanted. Then you get the Brian Danielsons. CM Punk managed to fall right into your lap. And you should have known. Like, you could have been Cole Cabana. Hey, man, we're probably going to hire him. Cole could have said, hey, don't do that. Dude's going to be a locker room cancer. Christopher Daniels, Frank Kazarian, all those guys could have said, hey, this dude's going to be a little bit toxic. Like, kind of don't do that. They could have had the opportunity just to say, no, nah, we're not going to do it. It just doesn't work for us. So you, so to a certain extent, they get what they deserve. But yeah, that's kind of where it's all at. The fact that you had it result to a fight between everybody. And people are saying, oh, he should, they should be suspended, fined, all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, go ahead. And watch your ratings dip down below a million. They're in a great place in terms of momentum. I just find it hilarious to me that people are just convinced that in 2022, everybody's just sunshine and rainbows in a locker room. It's not the case. I've never been in a locker room, but I've heard enough stories over the years that it's never always, hey, everybody's in a good mood. Everybody's fine. Trust me. Go to any independent show in the state of Louisiana or anywhere in these in the lower 48. And hell, even the other two states. I guarantee you, you're going to have somebody or some bodies that are going to be pissed off for one reason or another, be it due to booking or anything else. So before everybody else just starts saying, oh, AEW's in the mud, they're going to fall apart because of this tension. Here's the thing. It's been going on in the wrestling business forever. Is everybody's so protective of their spot in professional wrestling? WCW did it. WWE 
despite what you think, probably still does it. There's no reason why the hell they can't all get along. They, they can try, but guess what? Jealousy and ego is always going to play a role in certain things. I think John Moxley may be the most sane one of all of them. Brian Danielson too. But it's the fact that these guys have already made their money. Now it's time to go ahead and just wrestle their ass off. And they love to wrestle. So they're not going to be a problem. But guess who is? The ones that do have the egos. And I think to a certain extent, Kenny and the Bucks and Hangman, they have their own egos too. And they don't want to be treated like garbage and thrown out because, oh, hey, we got these bigger names now. And now it looks like, you know, they're what TNA wanted to be about 20 years ago. But they were actually able to get a larger scale of a viewership because TNA never had that in 20 years. They had one moment in time where they were able to get a million viewers, but they weren't able to sustain it. Because of crappy booking decisions and, you know, the overuse of Hulk Hogan in 2010. Because they were absolutely off to the races in like 2008, 2009. But then 2010 happened and that thing just completely fell apart fast. But that's enough about the insides, the ins and outs. That's like wrestling. Because that's that's never my place. Because again, full disclosure, never taken a bump in my life. I'm not one of these guys that's wanting to be a wrestling journalist. Just giving my own opinion and my general observations of what the wrestling industry is and has been in the past. And spoilers, every single locker room has a malcontent. You can try to get rid of them, but guess what? There's probably about 10 others. And until, you know, let's just say, the only way you're getting rid of CM Punk is if everybody in that building that's a wrestler quits. And I guarantee you that's not going to happen. I just don't see it happening. At all. I could be completely wrong. Prove me wrong though. AEW. Prove me wrong. But that's all I got for this week's edition of the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Next week we'll go ahead and kind of bring it back to a normal vibe. Hopefully. Hopefully things don't go completely bat bleep crazy. But we shall see. Until then. Appreciate you listening in. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review, if you will. I'll go ahead and tone down the swearing. Till next time, enjoy the wrestling. Don't be a jerk about it.